You're listening to Truly Criminal, the home of true crime. To see the video version of this case, including the footage and photos, you can find us on YouTube. Just search for Truly Criminal. The Northern Cape is South Africa's biggest province, covering almost a third of the country's surface area. But despite its huge size, it actually has the smallest population of all the provinces, well known for its diamond mines, big farming community, breathtaking views like the Agrabis Falls National Park, and a beautiful coastline. It has an arid climate with little rain, with some residents even describing it as exhaustingly hot. In Northern Cape is the city of Kimberley, and just a couple of miles outside, you can find the small, sleepy and rural hamlet of Kriekwastad, which is where this episode takes us, back to April 6th, 2012. That evening, a small pickup truck came hurtling towards the police station in Kriekwastad, screeching to a halt outside. A young boy got out and ran in, shouting, They're all dead, they're all dead. He was covered in blood. The boy was 15-year-old Don Steenkamp. The Steenkamps were a very successful and wealthy family, owning five farms in total that were generations old. They were prominent and powerful and big in the community, and everyone in the station knew that surname. Don told detectives that his entire family had been shot to death, and he had just managed to escape. He had been in the barn for a while when he suddenly heard gunshots coming from inside his home. They rang out so loudly, echoing through the vast space, and he recalled hearing multiple shots before it went quiet. He started running for the house, and inside he found his mother, 43-year-old Christelle, father, 44-year-old Dion, and his younger sister, 14-year-old Martella. There was blood everywhere. He said Martella was still just alive, and he tried to pick her up but she had died there and then in his arms. He ran for his father's truck, and as he pulled away, he heard more shots ringing out. As he got to the main gates, he saw two guns on the ground. He picked them up and put them into the truck. He then pulled over briefly to warn other farm workers, some of which were employees of the steam camps, before speeding away to the station. Police let him wash his hands and change his clothes, and he stayed there with them, while other detectives rushed over to the sprawling farm in question. Nauvuk, just a short drive from Kriekwastad. When they got there, they could see that the lights were still on, but it was eerily silent. No windows were smashed and there was no signs of forced entry that they could see. They called out, but no one called back. When they got inside, they saw Dion lying near the living room, just a few feet away from Christelle and Martella, who were lying closely together near the kitchen. They were all dead, and it looked as if everything had happened so quickly. They had only just finished up with dinner when the attacks took place, and the television was still on. Ballistics experts confirmed that all three had been shot, both by a revolver and a rifle. The revolver was used first, and the final shots came from the rifle. Dion had three gunshot wounds, one to the right shoulder, one behind the ear, and another in the chest. Christelle was shot in the shoulder, neck and back, and Martella was shot twice in the body, and twice in the head. 
Martella and Dion had blunt force injuries to their heads too, likely caused by the other side of the gun. One thing that the authorities would keep close to their chests and not publicly announce for a long time was that examinations performed by two doctors confirmed that Martella had also been raped between 12 and 24 hours before her death. The most recent injury she had sustained had actually reopened an old injury that had previously healed. Experts said that this showed she had been raped at least twice in her life. The injuries to Martella from that night showed that she was attacked in a far more violent way than her parents, and in the words of the authorities, she fought for her life like a tiger. Her wounds in particular were described as gruesome and torturous. Blood covered the walls and the kitchen countertops, and there was a big pool of blood outside by one of the trees. The blood by the tree was Martella's. Looking at the blood, the wounds and the placement of their bodies, they believed that Christelle had been shot first from behind. Martella was shot second, and, badly injured, she ran out the back door, leaving her blood outside. Dion was next. The position of his injuries made the experts think that he had made an attempt to run at his attacker to try and stop them, before being shot again and hit over the head. Satisfied that Dion was dead, the killer or killers then went to hunt for Martella, who was hiding and bleeding under a tree. She was then shot right in the face and struck over the head, which caused a significant amount of blood to gather there. All of these shots had been fired using a revolver. The killer then made their way back into the house to get a rifle, and, remarkably, Martella, who was still alive, managed to stumble back into the house, where she saw her parents. Her bloody handprint was found on the house phone as she had tried to call for help. She then grabbed her father's arm and tried to pull him towards her, but she fell to the floor by her mum, Christelle. The killer then returned with the rifle and shot all of them one final time. Everything about this attack felt so personal, especially when it came to Martella. It was a harrowing set of visuals, and even the most hardened of officers said that tears filled their eyes as they looked at the scene and realised just how defenceless the family would have been, and how frightening their last moments were, especially Martella's. But they quickly pulled it together, as this was now a huge murder investigation. and Christelle Steenkamp and their daughter Martella were killed on their farm near Hrikwestad on Good Friday. Robert believes the killer caught them off guard, possibly after removing the murder weapon from a safe in the bedroom. He says Christelle was shot from behind, while it appeared Dion had lunged towards the attacker. 14-year-old Martella was shot and beaten before she died. The first thing that came to many people's minds was that it was a farm attack. Farm attacks have been prevalent in South Africa for years. And even though the Northern Cape is firmly in the position as the safest province, when it comes to these attacks, they do still happen there. However, journalists said that although they can go this badly, crimes this brutal seldom happened in this location, and the stories that make the papers were more petty crime or drug or alcohol related. The Steenkamp's house was big, and there were a lot of belongings to account for but it didn't seem that anything was actually missing, except a kitchen knife and some keys. A few of the couple's safes were open, with the keys still dangling in the keyhole, but they still had things in them. There was cash on the side, amounting to about 32,000 rand, just over a £1,000, along with the couple's credit cards. 
TVs, laptops and phones were all there too, and Dion and Christelle's cars were still in the barn area, with the keys in the ignition. None of these items were hidden, they were just out in the open, and, all added up, these were things that could make someone a lot of money. So why hadn't they been taken? The couple's gun safe was also wide open too, but it was still full of guns and ammunition. Experts said it didn't seem that a robbery was the motive, so this was ruled out, despite a rumour circulating that Dion had killed his wife and daughter before turning the gun on himself. This theory was also eliminated. The news of what had happened was now spreading like wildfire. People could not believe that they had been with them just hours before at church. And now this had happened. Dion and Christelle had no enemies, no disgruntled employees the police could find, no one they owed money to, and no one in the community that even had anything bad to say about them. Leading the team was the provincial head of organised crime at the time, Colonel Dick Duval. And, with three decades of experience, he was the best person to tackle such a complex case. He went back to the farm with Don so he could walk him through what had happened. Duval set a timer up as well so he could get a clearer picture of when this had actually taken place. Don told him he thought he was in the barn for about 45 minutes. He had left Dion and Martella watching a show together and Christelle was working on the computer. He then heard the shots... He stayed still for about 10 minutes waiting for silence before running inside. When he found his sister, he picked her up and held her. In her final moments, she said she loved him before falling to the floor and grabbing at his T-shirt, which had been ripped. But this was not the T-shirt he had come into the station with. Don then walked them to his bedroom and picked up the ripped T-shirt to show them. They noticed some scratches on his neck, and he admitted that he and Martella had had a fight only a couple of hours before everything had happened. They asked what the fight was about, but he said he couldn't remember. They asked why he had taken the shirt off and changed, and he said that the sight of his sister's blood had repulsed him, so he had to get it off. He said after this, he ran back into the barn and hid, waiting for a few minutes before getting into his father's truck. He pointed out where he found the guns outside and where he had stopped to talk to the workers. He had then made the four-mile drive to the police station. Everything was being tested, but there was a lot to get through, and it was a slow process. There were a few fingerprints on one of the drinking glasses found outside near the back door, but testing would confirm they were simply Martellas. Sadly, not all of the evidence was preserved and able to be tested. There was a green jeep jacket belonging to Dion and a rug both covered in blood. But the day after the murders, Christelle and Dion's cleaners had burned them. Members of the Steenkamp family had even hired a private investigator to try and help them, but they were drawing a blank too. A few workers in the area said they had seen a white Audi with a broken mirror speeding around. A few of them even said they believed there had been a crash involving this car. The team went back, but they found no broken mirror fragments near the alleged accident site, and this lead went nowhere. The farm attack was still on people's minds, but the police weren't so sure. Nothing of value had been taken, and there was no forced entry. Two big things that didn't make sense. The family also had four dogs, which were found alive and well. Don had not mentioned hearing them barking at anything, 
and in a lot of farm attacks, experts said that dogs were often poisoned or subdued before these attacks took place. And it seemed clear that whoever the killer was, they knew the layout of the home, something a random intruder would not. Detectives also felt confident that they were looking for just one perpetrator. As the investigation continued, the family's funeral was held. Don sat in the front row with his grandparents, giving hugs to everyone that walked past. Everybody was heartbroken for the 15-year-old. In a matter of minutes, he had lost his parents and sister in the most traumatic of ways, and his life was irreparably changed. Everyone said that Dion and Christelle adored their children and they all had a comfortable and nice life, wanting for nothing. But despite their wealth, they were very humble and modest and never shied away from hard work, an important trait they wanted their children to have too. Dion's sister joked that Don was Christelle's favourite but Martella was definitely a daddy's girl. People said that when they first met, Dion was such a big man with a big presence, he looked intimidating but the moment you spoke to him, he was a teddy bear and a real softy. He coached under-18s teams in tent-pegging, an equestrian sport that is popular in the area, was a church deacon and was part of the farming union too, a proud man and someone very dedicated to his community. Christelle loved gardening and had recently started her own baking business. Don and Martella had both attended boarding school just over 200 miles away, but Dion and Christelle made sure they came home most weekends, driving there and back to drop them off and pick them up. They never minded the long drives though, because family time meant everything and they didn't like being apart for weeks at a time. Teachers said Martella was a dream student and a total perfectionist with everything she did. Her school paid tribute to the 14-year-old as well and the pain her friends and fellow students felt was clear to see. Another person who was trying to piece things together was Joe Skultz. He was in charge of rural safety in the farming union and was often a spokesperson if things like this happened. He unfortunately looked at and helped investigate many a farm attack, but he said in his experience what had happened to his neighbours and friends did not tick those same boxes. The police knew Skultz well and he had been allowed into the house on the night of the murders. He said Martella's face was beaten and swollen and she didn't even look like a person anymore, let alone someone he knew and had watched grow up. The attack was so violent he had never seen anything like it. Experts would later confirm that the same guns that Don had found outside and taken to the station with him were the murder weapons. But if he found the weapons 50 metres away outside, how could he have heard more shots coming from inside as he drove away? And if Don had been in the bar before the shootings happened, surely he would have seen or heard the killer coming. In a space that vast and rural, cars would be needed to get away, again making more noise and drawing more attention. Authorities already knew that Martella had fled outside to hide by the tree, a tree that was just a few steps away from the barn. 
How could Don not have heard her when he was so close? And if he had been trying to save his little sister like he had claimed, why would he talk about her blood repulsing him so much? Surely he wouldn't have been focused on that. Why would he spend time changing his clothes in a house that was under attack with a killer on the loose? Gunpowder residue tests done on two of Don's shirts recovered from the house came back as positive. All of this, along with the fact that there was no forced entry, no other DNA, the dogs hadn't reacted and nothing had been stolen, meant just one thing. The attention was now firmly on the only surviving person from that night, 15-year-old Don Steenkamp. Was it possible that the same boy that had come running into the station, hysterical, had actually been the one to commit the crime? But why, they wondered. The rape of Martella presented this potential motive. Don had sexually assaulted his sister and then killed his family to cover it up when she threatened to expose him. And then there was the cell phone analysis. Data from Christelle's phone showed that she sent a text message to Martella at 6.34pm Nothing serious, just a short message about an upcoming holiday. But this was crucial in terms of the timings. This meant that the murders had to have taken place after 6.34pm, and if Don was already at the station at 6.50pm, this would have meant someone breaking in and murdering everyone happened in just 16 minutes. This did not match Don's timeline, and he would have been unable to do everything he claimed he had done in this small window. They also found it an impossible idea for the killer and Don to not have run into each other in those few minutes. And if he had actually heard more shots ringing out as he sped away, that would mean the killer was still in the house and would undoubtedly have crossed paths with Don as he was going in and out. They felt the only way you would feel safe to stay in the house long enough to change your clothes is if you knew no one dangerous was actually in there. Blood splatter analysis also did not link with his version of Martella grabbing his shirt as he tried to help her. In fact, the splatter pattern on his shirt proved that he had been close to her when the shots were fired. It would have looked totally different if it was a smear of blood or a transfer as he held her. An expert said that Martella would in all likelihood have been too weak to tear his shirt, so they felt confident that this had been torn as he attacked her and she tried to defend herself. Police felt it was possible, however, for Don to kill them all in several minutes, quickly change, throw the guns in the truck, then drive just a few minutes to the station. More texts from after the murders had also been analysed. These were texts between Don and one of his friends. Who do they suspect? Only me. Are there no other fingerprints? No, only mine. Is there no other evidence to find someone else? No, they're not going to find anyone else. At this point, even Dion's sister said she suspected her nephew, but couldn't quite fathom it. She said consoling him whilst also questioning his actions was surreal. She was still hoping she was wrong. On August 21st, 2012, Dick Duvall arrived at Don's school with handcuffs. Detectives working the case said they had exhausted every other possible line of inquiry. They felt they had been as thorough as they could be before they presented their case. Even they didn't want to think that the 15-year-old son and brother could have done this to his own family. 
but after four months, copious and time-consuming investigations, tests and expert opinions, they just could not draw any other conclusion. The now 16-year-old Don Steenkamp was placed under arrest in his headteacher's office. Don was walked through the school to the car, with other students watching on. Don just stared ahead. He didn't seem angry or upset. He was blank. Duval was driving to the station when a breaking news announcement came over the radio. A 16-year-old has been arrested for the murder of the Steenkamp family. Duval said he discreetly glanced at him through the mirror to see his reaction. He said a slight smirk flickered across his face before he went back to staring into space. Don Steenkamp was charged with three counts of murder and one count of defeating the ends of justice. He would also later be charged with the rape of his sister Martella. He pleaded not guilty to all five charges. In early September, Don was granted bail so he could carry on with his schoolwork. People in the school said that Don had always been rather quiet and sometimes even slightly withdrawn. But after his family's murders, he was like a different person. He was chatty, confident to the point of arrogant, and loved the attention this was all bringing him, especially from girls. Teachers said it was a far cry from the teen just a couple of months ago. But while on bail, he was forced to drop out of school as some of the other parents were piecing things together and looking at him as a suspect. There were soon so many complaints about him being back in the school that his head teacher asked him to leave. So although his name and face were technically concealed, many people had long been talking and connecting the dots. A psychologist assessed Don during this time and said he had no history of aggression and exhibited no symptoms of having any kind of behavioural disorder or mental health issues. She said from talking to him, she didn't think anyone could have predicted this. Another psychologist added that Don showed good character, was respectful, had positive attributes and formed good relationships with people. There were no red flags, so to speak. She said that in most cases where children kill their families or parents, it is because they are a victim of chronic abuse. Sources say that although Dion could be strict, from what they saw it was no more than most parents and there was nothing to suggest any abuse was happening in the home. Don himself emphatically stated to one expert that his parents were never abusive towards him. In order for the trial to go ahead, legal fees had to be sorted out. In October 2013, the Northern Cape High Court agreed to release 500,000 rand of inheritance bequeathed to Don so that the trial could start. The funds were released through the last will and testament of Don's grandfather. The court did not allow any funds that would have come from the estates of Dion and Christelle. In South Africa, the jury system in courts was abolished in 1969, so it was down to the Northern Cape Judge President Franz Holmo to make a decision on whether or not he was guilty. The media has been warned to toe the line. The judge threatened criminal charges if the accused is identified even to family and friends. Since his arrest, a court order had prevented Don's name from being released. Cameras were allowed in the courtroom, which is why we see him inside, but ones of his face were not published, and a lot of the time, it was just the back of him that was shown to the media. Tragic and grim. Describe the tone of proceedings as a 17-year-old stands trial, accused of killing three members of the Steenkamp family. The workers record how the accused had showed up screaming for help. They've told the court how they fled the farm and walked towards the town. The defense used the opportunity to point out the differences in their testimony. 
particularly about a white vehicle which some claim to have seen speeding towards the farm on the day of the attack. Investigating officer Dick Duvall took to the stand, painstakingly explaining his role in recreating the events around the Steenkamp family's deaths. But not before counsel for the defense read into the record 132 points of evidence, which they will not be disputing during the rest of the trial. These include an admission that no gunpowder residue could be found on the accused hands, yet traces were found on both shirts he's alleged to have worn on the day of the murder. There were also no traces of semen or male DNA on Martella Steenkamp, who was allegedly raped before her murder. The police questioned the accused claims that he was hiding in the barn for 10 minutes after the murder. The state disputes his version of his movements on the day of the murder, using a global positioning device and retracing the steps he claimed to have taken on the night, combined with the time frames, they say there are several discrepancies. The trial is set to continue for the next two weeks. As the trial started, things were thrown into question when police got an alleged confession from three sources, two women and a man. It was reported that one of the women, who was at the time already in custody for possession of explosives and ammunition, said that the Steenkamp murders were part of a plan to attack white farmers in an attempt to instill fear and incite racial hatred. But the police said there was absolutely no truth to this and not a shred of evidence that supported it. Most of the day's testimony focused on police's reaction at the crime scene. Police have dismissed as rubbish sensational claims that the murders were the work of a right-wing hit squad. The police actually investigated those, those allegations. They went to Mpumalanga to fetch her and took her to Kimberley. She submitted an affidavit. We, we are satisfied that, you know, what we have is enough uh, for our purposes. Uh, we do not believe that what she says is consistent with the evidence that we have at our disposal. The prosecution felt that they had a strong case and they had almost 100 witnesses that they intended to call. They presented their motives and timelines. Don had raped his sister Martella and she had threatened to tell her parents. Don had shot them all to cover this up. And the fact that Martella was involved in a struggle prior to her death also supported the theory that the murders had something to do with her assault. Today the defence wanted the media to leave. The application relates to the testimony of a medical doctor who will take the stand tomorrow. The defence believes that his testimony is very sensitive in nature. The judge, however, kept to his earlier ruling, allowing the media to attend and report on the case. I think it's very important for us to be here because we've been, the public's informed, they want to know what's happening here. And it's vital for us to report on the medical testimonies that will be delivered this week and next week. The judge, experts and police all felt sure that the person that had raped her was also her killer. And if she was assaulted 12 to 24 hours before she was killed, what were the chances that this happened and then the intruder came back a day later to kill everybody? He says he was sent photos of Matella's genitals by police to examine. Yals testified that his examination of the photos revealed that Matella was forcefully penetrated, but that the wound had healed. He could not put a time frame to the alleged rape, but said that genitals healed quickly because of good blood flow. The 17-year-old mumbled to himself and fidgeted for most of Yals's testimony. He also pulled on his front teeth and at some point appeared to blush. 
Three other witnesses took the stand today. Two minors testified about BBM and personal conversations they had with the accused on the night of the murders, as well as the next day. The last witness, an astrophysicist, also testified about the sunrise, sunset, and the location of the moon on the night. Dr. Nicola Loring testified that at the time of the murders, visibility on the farm should have been good. The case resumes on Monday. Another motive was the fact that Don was set to inherit 23 million rand, the equivalent of almost 1 million pounds or 1.3 million dollars at the time. He also stood to get Martella's portion as well. A day after the killings, one of the first things he asked a psychologist was how his inheritance would be worked out and said he knew all about his family's finances and what he was entitled to. Don did testify himself and the judge said he showed himself to be a poor witness and under cross-examination, his story was easily discredited. But even when he was caught out in a blatant lie, he seemed totally unfazed. One journalist said they kept looking for some form of emotion, but Don gave them nothing, except being arrogant to the judge. On one of the days, everybody went down to the farm to get a clearer picture of where everything was. When the judge saw where Don had allegedly found the weapons, he commented that this made the killer the dumbest farm attacker in South Africa. To kill the family, run for the exit, drop the murder weapons and then run back in. He added that if the only thing that was stolen was a knife, it must have been a diamond encrusted one to have been worth taking over everything else in the house. The tour was for the judge president to familiarise himself with the scene. The first stop was at the Grikostad police station and then the spot where a suspicious bucky was found. The group also inspected the shed where the 17-year-old accused alleges he was at the time of the shooting and the house where the bodies were found. But Don's defence team said in their eyes, it still pointed more towards an intruder than Don. They said that the only real theory they had as a motive was the rape, but they doubted whether this had even happened, despite two doctors confirming it had. They even went as far to say that Martella could have caused the wounds and bruising in and around her genitals herself. They also pointed out that there was no semen found, but given that it was 12 to 24 hours later, the state said this didn't really prove anything. The analysis from the doctors was enough to prove it. After several weeks and a tough trial for the family to sit through, the judge returned his verdict. Placing himself in the barn is pivotal to the minor's defence. This is so because if this is not where he was during the murders, then he must have been in the house with his parents and sister when they were killed. I have to be extremely charitable to the moment. I would have to find that he witnessed the shooter eliminate his family. A less charitable view would be that he was in cahoots with the shooter, or the least charitable scenario would be that he must have pulled the triggers of the smoking guns that he later that evening delivered to the police. He found Don guilty of the premeditated murders of Dion, Christelle and Martella and the rape of Martella. He was also found guilty of defeating the ends of justice, 
also known as preventing justice or perverting the cause of justice. The judge said he was also totally convinced that this was not the first time that Martella was a victim of Don's sexual abuse. In his final statements, the judge said, I am satisfied that no one other than the minor accused committed all the offences listed in the indictment, as the state has in fact proved them, not only beyond a reasonable doubt, but beyond any shadow of a doubt. To deal with all aspects proved against the minor would amount to an overkill. The murders were not only premeditated, but were in fact planned and executed with the direct intent to murder. He added, In my view, the minor, the torturer, wanted to have sexual intercourse with Martella. When she refused, she was consequently tortured, raped and murdered to prevent her from reporting it. Her parents had to be eliminated. There would be no reason for Martella to inform anyone of the sexual activity if a consensual love relationship existed between her and the accused. The truth is, he is the architect of his own misfortune. He is the one who raised the alarm with the police and cried wolf. Been months of gruesome and often emotional testimony. The underage convicted murderer will be sentenced within the parameters of the Child Justice Act. During mitigation and aggravation of sentencing, the defense conceded that a jail term would probably be the best sentence, but they argued against the maximum sentence, saying the boy's age and ability to rehabilitate must be taken into account. On Friday, the teen turns 18. During his sentencing, he told Don to face the consequences of his actions. Two days later, Don turned 18, and with this, the order preventing his name from being released was lifted. People were stunned, but others that had questioned the crime scene in the first place, like Joe Skultz, said it sadly explained so much that they hadn't been able to explain any other way. When it came to the sentencing, a legal expert said that the South African justice system did not really give life sentences or sentences exceeding 20 years for children under the age of 18. The maximum sentence he would be facing was 25 years. Both rape and murder are classified as Schedule 6 offences, however when it comes to minors, it is entirely left to the discretion of a judge to decide on a suitable sentence. You are sentenced as follows. Count one, the rape of Miss M, 14 years old, 12 years in prison. Count two, the murder of Mr. G, 44 years old, 20 years in prison. Count three, the murder of uh, Mrs. C, 43 years old, 20 years in prison. Count four, the murder of Miss M, mentioned in count one, 20 years imprisonment. Count five, defeating the ends of justice, four years in prison. A very good afternoon. You're watching PM News, our top story this hour. Northern Cape Judge President Franz Homo has sentenced the Khrikwa Stad killer to an effective 20 years behind bars. The accused, a 17-year-old boy, killed the family at their farm in Nauvuk near Khrikwa Stad in 2012. Dion Camp, his wife Christelle, and their daughter Marcella were shot to death. The judge said that the Khrikwa Stad farm murderer was not used by anybody else or influenced by anybody to commit the Camp murders. All sentences would run concurrently, making it 20 years in total. He reacted to nothing as the verdict was read out. Stony-faced, he hugged some family members goodbye, 
before he was led away. The judge said that whatever happened to him after this was none of his concern. In line with the Correctional Services Act, he will serve at least half of the sentence before he can apply for parole, which is 10 years. This does not mean that he will get parole after those 10 years, just that he cannot apply before then, and 10 years will take us to 2024. His age at the time of the killings will not have any impact on future parole considerations, because the judge already took that into consideration with his sentencing. Even if he qualified for parole after 10 years, there will still be other guidelines and regulations that could play a role, like inputs from family members, for example. He has also since been investigated in prison for breaking rules, and things like this will factor in too. Legal experts said if it wasn't for his age at the time, which constricted the judge in the sentence he could give, he might have been given a lifelong sentence. An appeal was filed, but Don needed to have his first legal bill settled from the trial and then find a team to take it on. People have always been split on what they believe, even his own family. His grandmother Betty said although she believed he was innocent for so long, the evidence against him was just too strong and she had accepted that he was guilty, but that she also forgave him. I still love him even after this terrible thing they say he did, the killing of my only son and his wife, and the child who I also loved. She hoped that he could get the necessary psychiatric and psychological help so that one day he could make a positive contribution to society. Dion's sister Mariana said that she has to simply make peace with the outcome and accept it. Neighbours like Joe Skultz, who believe he is guilty, said if Don could admit that he did it and tell people why, it would give them the closure they all need and they might be able to move forward, maybe even forgiving him one day. This brought an end to a truly unprecedented case that had been on everyone's mind for almost two years. Known to many as the Hrikwastad farm murders, it dominated the media for ages and left a lasting imprint on Northern Cape and further afield. A telling read that puts a spotlight on one of the most gruesome stories to come out of South Africa. The Hrikwastad murders unfolded like a Hollywood movie. In 2012, the Northern Cape town was shook by a murder like no other. Jacques joins me here in studio. Uh, Jacques, thank you very much for joining me here, Munilan. Thanks for having me, sir. Jacques Steenkamp, who is of no relation to the family, followed the trial and the family's journeys and wrote a best-selling book about the case, which was then made into a film in 2019. People likened that day in April to feeling like a horror movie in itself. Judge Franz Holmo later retired but was appointed Inspecting Judge of the Directorate for Priority Crime Investigations, also known as the Hawks. And sadly, in 2021, Dick Duvall, who had played such a vital part in bringing this case to a close, passed away after a short illness. It is safe to say that there will forever be so many unanswered questions about that day, and closure for the family left behind may always be so far away. Don has not spoken about that day, but still denies having any part in it. So what actually happened on the farm on the 6th of April 2012 will likely never be known, and everyone will remain in the dark. One psychiatrist said that over time and with more assessments, a personality disorder or mental health issue might arise and show itself, which could give a clearer insight into his mind at the time. 
but there is also a good possibility that this will never happen. She said whatever happened on that day is locked in his head, and if he hasn't said it yet, I don't think he'll ever say. I think the story was truly buried on that day.